0: All right, well, this morning we're going to be looking at a passage, a very famous passage. It's found in Matthew 6, uh, verse 25 to 34. So if you've got your Bibles, um, open them up and we're going to sit in this uh, this whole text this morning. I'm going to read the first um, part out to us, Matthew 6, verse 25 to 27. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more, more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more that valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Let's pray. Father, it is a, a privilege to gather together as your family, as your sons and daughters. And as we open your word this morning, we thank you that your word just contains so much power. We thank you that your spirit is here, that your spirit is revealing truths to us. And Father, I want to pray that we would be a people whose hearts are vulnerable, that we'd be a people whose hearts are open to you. And Father, we just thank you that you meet us where we're at. You meet us in the good and you meet us in the bad. Father, I want to pray that you would help us to trust you. I want to pray that we would walk away people of greater faith this morning. And Jesus, we just thank you that you're a God that is to be enjoyed. You're a God that loves us and you're a God that knows us. And so, Father, help us to glorify you in everything that we do this morning. In your great name. Amen. Anyone in this room um, care to admit if they're a bird watcher? A few of you? Like passionately going out and bird watching, like from the lounge room, right. Good, Now, Growing up, like if you were to ask me what my favourite bird was, it would have been an eagle because obviously like an eagle just gets things done and munches all the other birds top of the food chain. But we moved into Glenhaven um, about a year and a half ago. We've moved out of there now, but um, we were there for about a year. And in the front yard of our our little our place at Glenhaven was this bird that I just came to fall in love with. Um, and it was a bower bird. And this bower bird, everyone knows what a bower bird is. Yeah? Okay. Well, a bower bird is this like fascinating bird because basically it just goes and collects blue things. It's obsessed with the color blue. Um, and so this bower bird, it was like this dark blue color, um, and it would go around and just build it. We built this nest in, in our front yard. And so we would w- before we even noticed this bowerbird was there, we noticed that people were at our front, um, our front fence and they would just stand there like with their family just staring at our, at our garden. And I remember us looking out there going like, what are these guys doing? Like are they creeping on us as a family? Are they like trying to get the goss? Um, and then we realised like we started doing some investigation. We were told by a couple of people in here like Brian Berry that we had a bowerbird in the front yard. And we, uh, we found this nest and the nest that a bowerbird creates is incredible. It's this, um, it's this like uh, group of twigs that goes in this little arc sort of formation and, and then it surrounds this nest with all these blue things, blue pegs, blue dummies, you name it, and they're there. Um, and we'd watch this bowerbird and the bowerbird would, would go to the top of the tree, it would act really busy and then all of a sudden off it would go and it would find something that was blue. Um occasionally its girlfriend would pop in and its girlfriend was a brown bird. Um and the whole point of what this bow bird is trying to do is trying to attract the, the his girlfriend back to his nest on a constant basis. Um and to keep his 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 lady friend um impressed with him. Um of course his wife. Um and um and so we had a lot of fun with this bower bird. This bow bird had so much character, had so much personality. The boys did it all the time. They'd creep on up to its nest and they'd, they'd try and steal some of its blue things. Um, we used to leave um, blue straws everywhere, and we did a, we did a test on the bow bird. So we put all these different color straws out on the driveway, and all the blue ones were gone. Um, it was amazing, and like it would take blue things all the time. The moment we knew that, like it was watching us all the time, it had a blue dummy. And Eli, when he was growing up, just loved dummies. Like he was so protective of them, wouldn't sleep without him. And this bow bird nicked one of them, and so Eli learned that he was he couldn't go outside with a blue dummy or anything blue. And if any of the boys were carrying anything blue, he, like he would make sure they had to to hide them away because the bow bird was watching, and he would come and come and get you. Um, this bow bird, like, it was really, it's a really fun bird. It's a great bird. Um, and one of the things that I, like, I learned, like, watching this bird, because we were there for a year, um, was one, this bird just had heaps of personality. Um, this bird was really busy. It was always doing something. It was always going and searching for the best blue thing that it could find. In its nest, like, literally would have had about 300 pieces of blue things, so pegs and everything. Like, it had, it had been really busy. It was really good at what it was doing. Um... And it just reminded me, like, that God really cares about the little moments in our life. He really cares about the little things. Um, I remember, like, having this moment where I was watching this bird do its thing. And I'm just like, God created that. God created this bird with all these little details and all this intricacy and all this personality that for most of the world, like, they're not watching this bird do its thing. But for us and our family and for some of the locals in Glenhaven, like, it brought us a lot of joy and it brought people a lot of joy. And I think one of the things is I want to start looking at this passage today is that when we approach God, when we think about God, often we we look at God and we go, He's the God of history. He's this God of, of grandeur. He's a magnificent God. He's in complete control of absolutely everything. He's the God of of history. But the thing with God is he doesn't just set the world into motion and then leave it. He's not a God of just the really big moments throughout history. He's a God of the minor little details. And when we read Scripture, when we look at the narratives, when we look at the the personalities in Scripture, we see that God is constantly involved in the really big moments, but he's constantly involved in the really small moments, the really minor details of their lives and of our lives. God cares about our things, He cares about our passions, He cares about our everyday, He cares about the mundane things in our lives, He cares about the minor conversations that we have. And we often like to like remember like we often think about when we look at our testimony, the major moments of our lives. But one of the things God wants to remind us of is that He is involved in the every single step that we take, and He cares about the every single step that we take in our lives. He cares about all the different motions that we have in our lives. he is there in the minor joyful moments he is there in the moments of just deep like just just mundaneness just flatness he is there in the moments of suffering in our lives we're taught throughout scripture and we know this like we've experienced this that God is deeply personal and a God that is deeply personal cares about every single moment that is going on in our lives And I want to start this passage by just acknowledging that God's character is on display here. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. These birds aren't doing things that we describe as wisdom. They're not doing long-term planning when it comes to eating, when it comes to planning for the future. And yet God looks after them. God rewards them. God's grace is over them. We're told constantly in Scripture that grace isn't earned. When you look at the story of the prodigal son, we do not find favour by doing. We find favour by running into the arms of of God and being embraced by him. This passage itself is so much that the outset of this passage, the foundation of this passage is talking about God's character above all else, that he is a God of grace that he provides for us, whether, we does, whether, we, um, whether we've earned it or whether we haven't. His rain falls on those who have earned it and those who haven't. His grace abounds over this world and there is nothing stopping his grace. The God of the universe, the God of the grand, the God of the cellular, the God of the minute, he deeply cares about our lives and he is a God of grace. We do not earn our salvation, we do not earn our rightness with God. He lavishes us with his grace regardless. And so we approach this passage, and this passage is very much looking about this idea of worrying. Now, worrying is to feel anxious or troubled about actual or potential problems. And we're really good at this. We're really good at this in our culture. We're good at worrying about things that have happened and, and things that we know um, are, are facing us right now. We're really good at like, making things up in our mind about what could happen um, and, and worrying about potential issues. And in this passage, it's in many ways hard for us in 2018, sitting here in the hills to kind of relate practically to what this passage is talking about. Do not worry. Um, the life Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothes? Now, for half the world, for more than half the world, um, food is an issue. But for us, it is not. The average wage in India for a year is $616. Many of us would have over $300 worth of clothes on as we walked in today. It's hard for us to relate to um, financially financial problems. It's hard for us to relate to not being able to put food on the table for our kids. That's not true for every Australian. That's not probably true for everyone in this room um, throughout our whole lives. For some of us, we may have struggled, but... But for the most part, we sit here in 2018, we sit here today on a Sunday in the hills and us providing for our family or us worrying about clothes, the worry we have about clothes is that we've got too many options and we're not sure what colour is going to match what. A study um, uh, in, a, in a magazine that goes throughout the city um, looked, at, <coughs> looked at what people worry about. and It was really interesting. They studied 2,000 people. So they got a small market, but they got enough. And basically, the conclusion was, was this. 42% of people aren't happy. And one of the major reasons they're not happy is because they're worried. They're so worried about what's going on in their lives. And here were the breakdowns of what people were worrying about. They're worrying about relationship breakdowns. they worry about how they dressed. They're worried about things at work, targets, job security, things of that nature. They're worried about paying bills. They're worried about getting old. They're worried about debt, about diet, about fitness, and about future. And one of the ones that's a huge marker for our time that sums up our culture so much is this, What do I want to do with my life? The overwhelming amount of options that people have. This is a huge one for a lot of young people who are growing up now, because we have this mentality, how do I lead a significant life? How do I be the best version of me is the the, the, the line that we're constantly sold in our culture? And so this overwhelming feeling that I'm stuck, that I'm not accomplishing what I should be accomplishing, I'm not not where I should be, um, is a huge worry for so many people in our culture. And worry is an interesting thing because we can worry about ourselves and we can worry about all those things that I've listed, but then we can start worrying about other people as well. And it's the most natural thing in the world as parents, for instance, to worry about our kids or as grandparents to worry about our grandkids or our kids. Um, it's the easiest thing in the world. And worry takes all these different shapes and all these different forms. And the truth is that Satan is really good at using worry and using anxiety to cripple our lives, to fill our minds with lies, to fill our minds with doubts, and to consume us truthfully on ourselves and on what isn't and isn't of the kingdom um, and is of, of Satan. So one of the things that's really interesting with worry is it comes down to this idea of control. We, we come... We come and approach worry with this idea that we have to control everything or that we can control everything. And one of the things in life, when we think about our lives from a grand scale, is that we are really underqualified to be the um, masters of our destiny, to be the commanders of our destiny. We are really underqualified to be the person in the, steering, in the, in the driver's seat in our lives. One of, the, one of the things that I'm really appreciating as I get older is this idea of simplicity. So intelligence, wisdom, is when we can take complex things and make them really simple and communicate them in really simple ways. And one of the narratives that I see more and more throughout Scripture that is just absolutely fundamental to the whole of Scripture, to the whole picture of who God is, is this idea of humility versus pride. If you put this, um, this lens through every Scripture, through every story, in all of, all of the biblical narratives, you'll see that there's this undercurrent of pride versus humility. Pride is this idea where we have this concentration on the self, according to C.S. Lewis. It's where we worry. It's where we try and control everything. It's where we focus on ourselves being the answer. Really practically, it's where we are the ones sitting on the throne in our lives. It's where we are the ones sitting in the driver's seat, deciding where we're going to go and how we're going to drive the car. Humility is the complete opposite posture of pride. It's where we have faith in, someone, in God outside of ourselves. It's where we trust God outside of ourselves. It's where we allow him to sit on the throne. It's where we lower ourselves. It's where we humble ourselves. Pride versus humility. It's a narrative that faces us every single day. Do we look to ourselves for the answer? Or do we humble ourselves and allow God into our issues and allow His wisdom and His guidance and His perspective and His love to be the one that steers our direction and steers our cause? We're really, really good at controlling things. We're really good at wanting to dictate things. It's a huge marker of our culture. It's a huge marker of being educated. But one of the things that it does is it puts us in the driver's seat where we shouldn't be in the driver's seat. And then we start to worry about things that we shouldn't be worried about. This affects us in so many different ways. It affects us spiritually, it affects us physically, mentally, emotionally, communally. It affects everything of who we are. So I want you to do something for me. As we walked in today, each one of us are carrying worries. We might be able to label them really easily, but we might not be able to label them really easily. But I want us to do something before we move into, um, into the next section. What I want you to do is I want you to close your eyes. Some of you will love this, like closing your eyes in, in, a, in a crowd. Some of you won't. But I want you to close your eyes. I want you to get your fists and I want you to put them into two balls. I want you to clench them as hard as you can. And I just want you to hold them. I just want you to clench your fists as hard as you can. And in your your hand, I want you to imagine every single worry that you have at the moment. It might be worries about your future. It might be regret about your past. It might be worries about debt. It might be a feeling of just flatness and just being stuck, not being in the right place. You might be worried about relationship breakdowns. You might be worried about money. You might be worried about who you are about your identity, about your kids. I just want you to keep holding. Keep holding your fists as hard as you can. I want you to be honest with God. You know what you have brought into this room. You know what you are worrying about. You know what Satan is doing in your mind on a constant basis. And I want to read these passages over us. Psalm 55 verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. In Matthew 11 verse 28 to 30, it says, Come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Keep holding your fists. In Philippians 4, verse 6 to 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. In 1 John 14, verse 27, it says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives, Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I just want you to picture Jesus right now. And each one of you will come up with different pictures of of who he is, but I want you to picture Jesus. And I just want you to picture Jesus releasing your hands and just open them up and just relax your hands. And open your eyes. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Look at the birds of the air. Are you not much more valuable than them than they? For each of us, we've carried as we come into this room, these things in our life, these worries that we have, these moments where we are feeling like we need to be in control. And what God is saying to us is that he is the one that wants to be in control. He wants to release us from these worries, from these burdens. Look at the birds of the air, are they not much more valuable? Are you not much more valuable than they? We were created to be free. We were created to be happy. We were created to be joyful. And when we try and control, it stifles our freedom. We are created to be like the birds of the air. And the thing in this passage that God is trying to remind us of, that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, is that his ways are higher. When he is in the driver's seat, there is this beautiful overflow that comes of that. His perspective is pure. His perspective is perfect. And so often we want to dictate where our lives go. We want to dictate the decisions that we make but it's so incredibly foolish. I've been doing jujitsu lately. And jujitsu is just like funny. It's this beautiful martial art. Um, but one of the things with jujitsu is it's really hard to get up the belts. It's really hard to go from a white belt to a blue belt. And if you meet someone who's a black belt in jujitsu, like there's someone who has studied for 10, 15 years and uh, are constantly learning, but they know so much. They They know how to teach really well. They know so much about the human body. Um, they know so much about how to, how to use the human body against someone else. They know so much about humility for the most part. And one of the things with someone who's a black belt in jiu-jitsu is even when you're in their presence, like the things that they're able to teach are incredible. What they've had to study to, to get there is just incredible. Um, and imagine like someone who's just starting out, standing next to someone who is a black belt in jiu-jitsu and you're trying to coach someone. And the white belt who's been doing it for two weeks says, oh, no, I've got, I've got a way to do this. And the black belt is sitting there with, say, 30 or 40 years worth of experience. They've trained five times a week. And this white belt is standing there saying, I know, I know a really good thing for you to do and trying to teach. And the black belt is sitting there going, I have 40 years of experience that I can, I can offer here. Um, it's like if I was standing in a room with Jamie Oliver, I'm a terrible cook. Like a terrible cook. I can cook chicken and that's literally it. Um, it's like me standing like in a room with Jamie Oliver and saying, I'm going to teach you guys how to cook. And me just saying, and me and Jamie Oliver sitting there with all his wisdom and all his personality and me going, I'm going to teach you guys how to cook because I'm really, I'm good, I'm good at teaching. I'm going to teach you how to, go, how to cook some chicken. Like the biggest waste, like how foolish of me to try and do that when Jamie Oliver is standing next to me. I think so often what the picture of our lives is that we want to plant a garden and we look at this field and there's this, this field in front of us and we, we're standing next to God and instead of asking God so often, where should we plant this garden? Where is the best soil? Where's the best place for us to plant? We sit there and go, God, I'm going to go do this and, and come with me. And one of the things, the markers of our life and the marker of humility is how often we're able to invite God into the decision-making of our lives. Instead of worrying about where we're going to plant the garden, invite God into that process and allow Him to dictate our thinking. Because when we do that, there's this overflow of joy and this overflow of beauty that will always come about because He is the author of life. He is the perfecter of life and we are not. When we worry, we put ourselves on the throne and we tell God that we know best and all God wants for us is freedom and joy There's this line that's been really um, really impacting for me over the last five five years, and this line is this: "We lead out of who we are um, a friend of mine um, Named Maddie, Maddie Beckenham, he, he uses this, this phrase, and it's similar like we leak what we carry. Um, another way to think about it is that we, uh, we have this overflow, this natural overflow in our lives. So, what is going on in our lives will overflow um, into the rest of our lives. And one of the overflows of worry, one of the overflows of anxiety, is a really deep sadness because we're not qualified to lead our lives. We keep making decisions that aren't kingdom-orientated. We keep making decisions that are further and further away from joy, are further and further away from happiness. And C.S. Lewis sums this up incredibly in the book The Great Divorce. I've shared this book so many times when I preach, but I couldn't encourage you enough. If you haven't read it already, write it down and go home and read it. It's a really short story, but it's brilliant. And in The, in the Great Divorce, there's this narrative um, and this narrative is of those people who are in the grey lands, And those people who are in the Greylands are those people effectively who are in hell. And hell is described by C.S. Lewis as just being grey. It has no personality. It has no creativity. It has no colour. Um, there's, there's arguing and discontentment. And there's this moment for people in the grey lands where they can go up to this, 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 uh, this middle ground, this purgatory, if you will, um, and C.S. Lewis is talking about this as if it's a story. He says at the outset, this is not, um, th- like don't base your theology on heaven around this story, but he, he's using it to get us to creatively think. And um, and C.S. Lewis he, talks about this idea with the Greylands, his characters in the Greylands, they go up to this, this middle ground where they're invited there by by spirits. They're invited by people who they may have met or done life with on earth. And there's this conversation where, All someone from the Greylands has to do is go up and catch this bus up to the the place with all the grass and all the colour and all they have to do is walk to the forest off in the distance. All they have to do is walk off yonder into the forest and make it to the trees and effectively that's what heaven is according to C.S. Lewis. And it's this fascinating story because you meet character after character who says why, explains to these spirits who come from the forest to bring them um, explaining why these characters can't make that journey, why the journey seems too long, why it seems too perilous. And, and for instance, one of the characters was, is worried about the grass. They're worried about the sharpness of the grass. They're worried about how far um, the forest looks to travel. They're worried about what will be in the forest when they get there. They're worried about whether people will like them or not. And so they decide never to make the journey in the first place. And this line that comes out of this book, I think, sums up our culture, like, so profoundly. And one of the characters says this, says, I wish I had never been born, she said, because what are we born for? And the reply from the Spirit is ridiculous. The reply is this, what are you born for? You are born for infinite happiness, and you can step into it at any moment. It sums up our time so profoundly. Come with me to the forest is effectively what C.S. Lewis is saying. Follow me and your burden will be light. Here we have this God who wants to lead us in the everlasting. He wants to lead us in joy, in happiness, in fulfillment. He wants to lead us in a deeper way. He wants to lead us in love where he loves us. He's laid down our life for us. He has a greater vision for our lives than we have but he wants us then to overflow that into the world in which we live he doesn't want us to overflow with worry or doubt he wants us to overflow with joy and with happiness because when we do that we exert his, his grace upon the world in which we live when we overflow a trust in him all of a sudden we overflow that joy and that fulfillment and that happiness into the world in which we live come with me to the forest, is effectively what C.S. Lewis is saying. Don't worry about what is there. One of the things with worry that's really, really important in terms of a posture is this idea of rest. And it's something in our culture we're not good at. We're told on the seventh day that God rests. And this link between faith and rest is intrinsic. You can't separate them. In Mark 4, verse 38, we read about Jesus in the storm with his disciples and the rain's coming, the storm the storm grows, and where is Jesus? Well, in Mark 4, verse 38, we read Jesus was in the stern, he was sleeping on a cushion. Like it's those minor details in Scripture that we, we read and you read past them and go, oh, well, like that means very little. But actually that means so, so much. Jesus was really good at rest. Andrew talked about this um, last week, uh, two weeks ago. Jesus is really good at retreating. Jesus was really good at finding his secret place. And in this moment, Jesus, um, Jesus is found by his disciples who are worrying about the storm that is going on around them. They're worried about their lives, and Jesus is lying there with his head on a pillow. And actually, that's really profound. The next thing Jesus does is get up, gets up and abu- rebukes them for their little faith and controls the wind and the waves with a word. Rest is really, really important. Rest cultivates faith because what it says is that we are not in control. It reminds us the world continues on without us. It helps us to be people who trust and in a culture of deep anxiety and worry, a posture of resting in God is the cure. Enjoying God, like genuinely enjoying time with him, enjoying our family, laughing, reading, thinking, being creative, whatever it is that puts you in a posture of heavenly rest, whatever puts you in a posture that ushers in the kingdom of heaven, of what heaven, what will be normal in heaven, um, that is a really good thing to do. And resting in God is essential in terms of our faith growing in him. The passage goes on. And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor and spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? And then there's this rebuke, you of little faith. I thought instead of spending time looking at like what it means to have a small amount of faith, I thought I would sit really quickly in, in who, who were people who had a grand amount of faith? Because that's who I want to learn from. That's who I want to be inspired by. And if you want to ever look at, if you're ever questioning faith, if you ever like need inspiration, this idea of what faith is, then always just turn to Hebrews 11. Here's a highlights reel of Hebrews 11. Verse 1, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. In verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In verse 13, after listing off all these heroes of the faith, the writer of Hebrews says this, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Faith is this idea, this reminder that this is not our home. So don't build our kingdom here. Don't worry about things that are not eternal. Don't worry about things. Don't put things on the throne and make them our priority that aren't eternal, that aren't of the kingdom. In verse 16, instead, they were looking for a heaven, a better country, a heavenly one. And then verse 38, one of my favorite lines in Scripture, the world was not worthy of them. And they did not. These heroes of the faith, the, um, the list of these heroes is long. They did not get this title, the world was not worthy of them, by worrying about what they did or didn't have. They gained it by listening, by following, by resting, by enjoying God, by trusting that he says he is who he is. Finally, the passage goes on in verse 31 to 34. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. For pagans run after these things. If we've accepted Jesus into our life, we carry the spirit of God within us. What that means is we are eternal beings. This life is the first chapter in what will be a really beautiful and long, long, long book. We are sons and daughters of heaven. We are eternal beings. This is not our home. This is not our final destination. We are to see the world through a different lens. And one of Satan's greatest tricks is to get us caught up in ourselves, is to get us to caught up in the temporary is to get us to be caught up in the, in the here and now without a perspective of what heaven will be. We are people who need to see the world through a different lens, through a heavenly lens, through the lens of the spirit that we carry within us. When you walk into your workplace, you do not go alone. You carry God, the creator of all the world and all the universe with you. When you walk into your family and it's stressful and it's chaotic, you walk in there as a posture of peace. When you walk into dysfunctional relationships, you go there with, as, as we looked at Wednesday night, as an agent of healing in that relationship. We are sons and daughters of heaven. And the problem for us is that too often we forget that. And we go about our everyday lives and the mundane moments and the tiny little like sections of our lives. And we forget that we carry the spirit of God within us wherever we go. The whole point of this passage is this line. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. God cares about the details. He cares about what we wear. He cares that we are provided for. His ways are higher. So that will look different than we often would like. But his ways are higher than ours. But this is what matters. This is what matters throughout all of Scripture. Seek first the kingdom of God. And we're taught this really simple principle. When we seek first the kingdom of God, everything else falls into place. We can't manipulate that. We don't know what that looks like practically. But what God is saying is that he will provide for us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never leave us on the journey as we walk through the valley. He will always walk with us. And when we seek first the kingdom, everything else in our lives falls into place. And let, it, let me like remind us of this. The thing that will fall into place above all else is this joy. This thing that everyone in our culture is seeking so, so much and trying to invest so many different, in, into so many different things so that they find this, this one pearl, this joy, it's happiness, it's deep satisfaction in who God is. That is the gift that we're given to overflow in the world. It's this joy that we know his grace, that we experience his grace, that we walk around as people with not clenched fists, holding on to every burden that we have. We walk away around in this life as people who have freedom, who have peace, because the Father has given us these things. Seek first the kingdom of God, and when we do that, that is what we will overflow in the world in which we live. I wish I'd never been born, she said. What are we born for? What a profound statement. We are born for infinite happiness, and you can step into it at any moment. In Luke 24, verse 32 to 34, Luke looks at this passage that we've been looking at and, and writes it slightly differently. I was preaching this message on the streets of Calcutta they'd take these things very differently in terms of the practical implications of food, the practical implications of what we wear for us in 2018 in the hills our worries is different but that doesn't mean that this passage doesn't apply to us one of the things that we often worry about is that we have so much And C.S. Lewis says, and he's one of my favorites, that's why I keep repeating him, but Lewis says we've never truly owned something until we have given it away. And for many of us in this room, this passage should be really confronting because there are things that we worry about that are not eternal. There are things that we place so much energy and time and we invest so much of our lives in that are not eternal. One of the things I wanted to remind us of as I finish is this idea, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And finally, I want to finish on this passage in Amos 9, a passage that has been changing my life over the last, last two years. This idea and all these things will be given to you as well. In Amos 9, there's this picture of hope for the Israelites after nine chapters of condemnation and judgment. There's this picture of grace and of hope. And at the end of Amos 9, Amos tells, um, prophesies that Israel will will do three things. They will rebuild the city walls, they will plant vineyards, and they will make gardens. And it is this picture of us as followers of Jesus in our mandate to usher in the kingdom of heaven in the here and now, that we will be people who build the city walls, we will be people who plant vineyards, and we will be people who make gardens. We will usher in his grace. We will be people who creatively express the gospel in every area of our lives in really beautiful and creative ways. And what God is saying in, through Amos in this passage is that there is this, this beauty that comes for us. When we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, everything falls into place. And the passage in Amos 9 says they will rebuild the city walls and they will live in them. They will plant vineyards and they will drink their wine. They will make gardens and will eat their fruit. There is this blessing that comes when we seek first the kingdom of God. The problem for us is that so often we put things on the, on, the, on the throne that don't need to be on the throne, that shouldn't be on the throne. And when they are on the throne, when things like money or, or work or family is on the throne, everything else overflows out of that and it cripples us. But when God is on the throne, there is this beautiful overflow of grace and joy that flows throughout our life. And it's the most beautiful thing that we can be a part of. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you that when you died on the cross, that you took away all our pain, all our shame, all our darkness. Father, we thank you that you defeated death. We thank you that you rose again. We thank you that you did all the work. And Father, you call us to be people who just rest in your grace, who just rest in relationship with you. And Father, for so many of us, we get caught up worrying about things in this life that don't really matter. For so many of us, we get caught up worrying about things that deeply do matter. But instead of giving them to you, we try and solve them ourselves. So Father, I want to pray just for a real freedom over us as a family today. I want to pray for those people, for all of us who have walked in with burdens, for all of us who have walked in carrying things. I want to thank you that your grace has released us from them. Help us to be people who are agents of change, agents of healing in the world in which we live. And Father, I thank you that, that you overflow your joy into us. Help us to experience that, Father. Help us to be people who make radical decisions in this life. Help us to be people who don't worry about security, who don't worry about being safe, who don't spend all that time worrying about our future. Father, help us to be like the birds of the air. Help us to be free. Help us to be radical and help us to trust you with everything that we have. Help us to be people of faith because it is not always easy. And Father, we thank you that you love us and that you're good. Amen.